Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. started a new series uh, three weeks, four weeks ago, because we had a guest speaker last week. Uh, we've got one more week after this, and then we hit the Easter. Man, I love Easter. And uh, when we hit the three weeks out from Easter, we're going to look at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, what he went through. And uh, I'm excited to get into that, too, as we build to Easter. I hope you're thinking of people to bring. We're like... Uh, Meredith said we're adding a service, and so bring some folks with you. We have enough room here and, uh, for everyone. In the book of Judges, uh, it's a time in history, which we have mentioned a little bit of this before, when Israel had no leader. There was nobody to guide them. They had gotten uh, out of the wilderness. The Exodus, which the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible was all about the people of God getting away from Egypt and into the promised land. And it's such a picture, even as it points toward the New Testament and Jesus coming, who would lead us out of our bondage, out of our slavery of our sin, and into a promised land of being put in right relationship with our Creator. All of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, are pointing toward that time. As it builds, it's almost like you can see this drama just building in the Old Testament, and you can feel the people looking for the Messiah to come. And so there's this exodus because we go through an exodus. We go through a baptism through the Red Sea as Jesus comes into our lives and and we are born again and we begin this journey with God. In Israel's history where we are in Judges, it's this period of time between the exodus and between them getting their first king. And so we're in a kind of a flux period where Israel is like we need somebody to lead us. They need somebody to give them direction. Joshua is passing from the scene. Moses is dead. And so Israel does like so many of us do. And that is that they get things right with God for a while. And then they just forget God. They go back to their idols. They go back to life as usual. They get sucked back into this lifestyle. Things become miserable for them. God allows them to reap what they have sown as they worship the idols of their culture. And eventually they become overwhelmed with being almost uh, over, just overcome with all the enemies around them until they cry out to the Lord. And when they cry out to the Lord, God raises up what the scripture has called a judge. Now this is not like our judges where they sit in a courtroom and they hold court. This is a judge as a deliverer. Someone sent to the people of God to deliver them from the hand of bondage of their oppressors. Of course, all of this, they're little glimpses of what Jesus will do, uh, you know, when he comes. And uh, when you read the Old Testament, I love it because the Old Testament is a book, and I don't know who, who I heard say this, maybe N.T. Wright, but it is a book in search of an ending, the Old Testament is. And so the ending is in Jesus Christ, which is the beginning. So everything we read, we have to kind of look, say, okay, what is it pointing toward Christ? What is it saying? It's building this, 
hunger, this anticipation of a real, true deliverer coming on the scene. So they have no king, they have uh, no leader at this time, and uh, once again, they've fallen back into the same, the same cycle, it's almost like an addiction cycle, and uh, they're back down again where they are worshiping the gods of their land, Baal and the Asherah poles, and uh, God is like, you know what, I told you guys, I told you not to worship the idols, I told you not to do that, and not to start following the gods in your area, and yet you did it, so no, you didn't want to listen to me, so if you don't want to listen to me, here's where this leads, and so he lets them reap, lets them reap whatever they've sown, and uh, this, these three chapters, we will definitely not make it through all these, but I want to point out a few things, we'll be in Judges 6 and 7, mostly this morning, and so let's pray, and we'll jump into this, Father, thank you for your word, thank you for Jesus, Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Father, I need your help today. I pray that you would give me the gift of teaching, of impartation this morning. I pray that we would learn from your scripture, from your word, from this story, Lord, the things that you want us to take away from this. And most of all, God, let us see your son, Jesus Christ. Let us see the deliverer, the deliverer of our souls and the need that we have for a judge, for a deliverer in our lives, to break the cycles, God. So we invite you to come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you here. Come and do what you do best. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Israelites, they've messed up. They have this group called the Midianites that have camels. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, the enemy had like 900 chariots with the iron rims around them. Israel has no weapons per se, And uh, they got a good band, as we're going to see in this story. But, you know, a good band's good, but it's not a weapon, we think. And and so they have found themselves just totally covered up by this terrible group of people who have thousands and thousands of camels. And you can imagine if you're a humble group and you have no weapons and then tens of thousands of marauding, angry, mean, vengeful people suddenly show up on camels riding into your village, what that would be like. And what would happen is the Israelites planted their crops and the Midianites would wait until the crops were just about ready to be picked and then they would sweep in and just take everything they had, all of it, leave them nothing. They would wait till their goats and till their livestock was just up old enough to be able to be taken away and they would sweep in with the camels and with 135,000 of them sweep into this area and take every single piece of livestock away and then they would run off. And they stayed close enough that this could happen at any time. So you can imagine, or maybe we can't imagine what it's like to live on that edge of anticipation of someone rushing into your village and taking the very food out of your mouth all of a sudden, robbing from your family, giving you no hope. And this is where we find this guy Gideon. So let's just uh, read a little bit of this. I'll be paraphrasing, telling the story a little bit more for time's sake today than reading through everything. But Gideon is hiding out in a wine press, this area where the wine is supposed to be made, where the grapes are supposed to be smashed and all. Well, he's hiding out in there because uh, 
It's probably in an area that can't be seen from the hills and the plains. And he's got what little bit of wheat he has and he's threshing it in there so he can get just a little bit of food for his family. Uh, Who would blame him, right? I mean, he just wants to feed his family. But he's afraid. He's afraid of the Midianites. And so he's pulled away and he's in this place meant for making wine and he's threshing wheat. And this is where uh, where we're going to join the story. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Orphrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, wait a minute. This guy is hiding out. And then an angel shows up and calls him a mighty warrior. The minute I read this, I thought, you know what? Sometimes God sees things in us that we don't even see in ourselves. Even at the point in life where we're cowering and we're wondering if we can even survive And we're pulled away and we're just saying, God, just let me get to a place where I can feed my family. I don't have the strength, Lord. I don't have the inner fortitude to be able to go out and do great things for you. I just want to take care of my kids. I just want to take care of my family. Because at any moment now, these guys are going to sweep down on us and take everything we have. You ever felt like that? Like it's just survival. Just put me, I'm just in survival mode. And if I can just get through the next few days, I'll be okay. If I can just feed my family, I'll be okay. And then the angel of the Lord, and many people think this was actually Jesus. Because he's called Lord, he's called God, you know. You know, Jesus was around before the New Testament. You know that, right? I mean, he was. He's been forever. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So believe that this was Jesus that actually came. And what I love is, I love casual anyway. He sat down under an oak. I mean, can you imagine? You're sitting there hiding out, just trying to get some food, and God comes and sits down under an oak. Hot, isn't it? And then he calls you, Hey, almighty warrior. And you're looking around like, Who's he talking to? Mighty warrior, I'm kind of hiding out. Who, Who is this? God sees some things in us that we don't see, even in times when we're fearful, even in times when we've pulled away. God still sees so much more. And then Gideon responds, pardon me, my Lord. You know what? If an angel talked to me, if Jesus showed up, that would not be the first words out of my mouth. I'd be like, holy, wow, God is here. But he's like, he's so bummed out. He's like, pardon me, uh, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? It's the universal question, isn't it? Like if God is real, If God is as good as you say he is, Tim, why is this happening to me? Because he sure doesn't look good to me right now. Yeah, it's okay to ask that question. It's all right. I've had that question quite a few times. Probably going to have it a little more in my life. And Gideon had that question. I don't get it, God. Why Why is life so tough? Why has this all happened to us? Where are all your wonders that our ancestors... I'm in verse 13. Where are all your wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, God could have gone into a long, drawn-out explanation at this point. Well, you see, I told you guys not to go worship the Baal idols. I could have said, You're getting what you deserve. 
God has what's known as the economy of verbiage. He only says what needs to be said. He's very good with his language skills. The Lord turned to him and said in verse 14, Go in the... I love God. He's got a great sense of humor. Go in the strength you have. The guy's hiding out. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? He doesn't even go into it. It's like, hey, you've heard this before. I'm not going to talk to you about it, but I've got a project for you. I've got a calling for you. I've got an adventure for you. You're called into it. This is the main thing. Listen to what I'm saying, mighty warrior. You've got to fill in a little sheet in your handout there. If you want to track along with me, there's four fill-ins there this morning. And uh, your first one is this. God evidently is just not impressed with your weaknesses. It doesn't put him off. And when I say impressed, I hope you get the, what I'm saying. All the excuses that you and I have for why I can't do this and I can't do that for God does not impress him. Oh, God, I can never do that. I can, you know, I've I got to be honest with you. It takes a lot for me to get up here and speak. You know what a Myers-Briggs test is? Any of you guys know this person? I'm an INTJ. So you know I think I am always right, and I'm more a venture version than it takes. But the message captured me years ago and pushed me out into sharing this wonderful, beautiful news of Jesus Christ. Because God is great at doing these things. When our weaknesses show up, he's a specialist at taking that and saying, because you're weak in this area, people will look at me and say, isn't God great? Look at what he did, what he does through you and how you love and how you treat people and how you throw yourself out there even though you're scared and you're uncomfortable but you're willing to do it for his sake so you step out there. God is so good at that. Like the title of our sermon series, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. That's, we're all just ordinary people. All of us. Gideon's hiding out. His weaknesses are very apparent. The angel looks at him and says, Go in the strength you have. In other words, whatever you have where you are, <clears throat> excuse me, is enough. As long as it's with God. Whatever little bit you have, with God's calling, with God's will in your life is enough for you to do what God has called you to do. I mean, doesn't, I mean God gives us example after example of this. Remember, what is it in uh, 1 Kings 17 when Elijah came into the village and there's this, wi- uh, this widow and she's got a young son and there's a famine in the land and he walks up to her and he says, hey, you know, I want you to cook me a meal. And she goes, well, I only got just a little bit of dough and I was going to make some bread for my son and I and we were going to die. Because we were going to starve to death. I mean, we have no food. So, yeah, the preacher is always wanting something from somebody, didn't he? So Elijah, Elijah comes to her and says, no, I want you to make me a meal. And so she, she makes the meal. And what happens? You know the story in 1 Kings 17? What? There's enough food. Somehow in that little that she had, God made more when it fit in with his will with what he was doing in her life and in what Elijah was doing. How about the disciples? Jesus says, how much food do we have? We've got a lot of people out here to feed. Well, we only got a little bit, Lord. But what did he do? Jesus blesses it, 
And he takes the little in that situation where most of us would back out of it and go, there's no way I'm putting myself on the line for that. But with God's will involved in it, going in the strength that you have with God, not on your own, but with God, it makes all the difference in the world. God is just not impressed with our weaknesses, and that's not all. Look in verse uh, 6, chapter 6, verse 15, and here he goes again, Gideon, pardon me. (laughs) He's already done pardon me one time. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? Here comes another excuse. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. His family was like the last ones for the pickup basketball game. You know what I'm talking about? You've been there? You know, everybody's sitting around the court, you know, and the guys are picking, you know, or the ladies are picking the game, and you're like, crap, what's somebody going to pick me? You know, and you're the last person, the last one they choose. Well, that was, that was Gideon's family. They were the punk family, you know. They were the punks of the whole group there. They were the last ones. Nobody respected this family. Nobody expected big things out of this family. And he's like, I mean, look at me. God, look at my family. Look at us. I mean, we're a mess. We're a mess. You could never use us. And that's your second feeling here is God is not impressed with your family. That doesn't stop him. It's like, oh, yeah, gosh, I hadn't considered the fact that you, know, you got this in your background, that there's been alcoholism, there's been this in your background, and no one's ever done this, and no one's ever done that, anything great for God. So, I, oh, that's right, I picked the wrong guy. Sorry, Gideon, go back to threshing your wheat. God is not impressed. Now, by that, I don't mean that he's not concerned. I mean that it doesn't eliminate you from being drafted by God to do wonderful things. Matter of fact, I think God loves doing that through people who have excluded themselves, who have thought that God could never use them. God gets great glory out of doing wonderful things through people like that, like us. And I mean, it's just like God, when he talks about his family, as we read on into this, we find out that Gideon's father is kind of like one of the leaders of the false religion in this area. His dad has set up idols in the backyard. Gideon's father has. And it's just like God, when he calls us to follow him, when he invites us into this adventure of following Jesus, it's just like God to have us deal with our families first. Because he tells Gideon to go and tear down the idols that are in his backyard first. And we think, man, that's a big deal, God. My family? I mean, my family, really? But God loves to deal with our families, and he loves to deal with us through our families. A few of you here have heard this story before. Many of you haven't. But years ago when my daughter was a teenager, um, my wife says that she and I are a lot alike, so we lock horns, (laughs) especially when she was a teenager. And um, we were going at it one night, just, I mean, going at it, two in the morning, and I was upset. And she, my, my, my daughter is up for a verbal battle at any moment. And um, so we're going at it. And every time I would say something to her, she would come right back at me. You know, you know the feeling? You know, no matter what I said and no matter how much I appealed to reason, there was no reason in this. And no matter how much I would say, you don't understand, I'm the dad, you're the daughter, it didn't matter either. And I found myself getting incredibly angry. I mean, to the point that I was afraid I was going to say something that I might regret the rest of my life. And so I got up, and I walked out. 
Now, we'll never forget this, talking about how God works in your family. I'll never forget hearing her voice go, is that it? Is that it? Is that what you're going to do? She's going to walk out? She's going to stop the conversation? Is that how you're going to deal with this? Is that it? And I realized at that moment that God had suddenly entered my family and was about to deal with some of our inadequacies. The whole fear of confrontation, the whole fear of having an honest adult conversation with your emerging adult children. Not that they're there yet. It seems like ever. Um, but, <laughs> sorry. But as they're emerging, God grabbed me, and all of a sudden, I was the teenager. She was the adult. And if we miss a moment like that, folks... We miss God in our families. We miss God speaking to us. And I I, I turned around, I walked back in, and I looked at her. And I thought, she is more of an adult than I am right now. And we sat down on that bed, and I really believe when we had a chat, we had a talk. And I think it was a turning point, you know, in our family, in our relationship. God loves your family. It doesn't matter how much you've been through how much brokenness and how much heartache God is always after to enter our families, to bring his redemption, to do a great work. And many times he does that in the beginning, right when God's about to use you in some other way. So don't think God's impressed with how messed up your family is or how great it is. Either one, he's not. He will choose you and he will use you no matter what. He will use you in his will, in his kingdom, to do mighty and great things. And I mean, and a great question for us is, you know, what are the idols in our family? What does God want to see brought down in our families? Maybe today in this room is the beginning of a new life for your lineage, for your family. Even if you're not married yet, even if you don't have children yet, maybe the way you respond to God right now starts a whole new life. It breaks this cycle that we're seeing even in Israel over and over again. Maybe today is a very important day for all of us. And we get to verse 17 and Gideon. I mean, hey, if an angel, if Jesus shows up while you're hiding out and he talks to you and he talks about what he wants to do, would you be like, I'm good. Okay, I get it, God. I'm willing. But Gideon, really, we're not that good sometimes, right? But in verse uh, 17, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign. It's not enough that an angel showed up for Gideon. Sometimes it's not enough for us that God has done things over and over and over for us. But Gideon, like us, If now I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. So he goes away, gets an offering, brings it back, puts it on a rock. The angel takes the staff, it was Jesus, puts it down, and flame just shoots out from the rock and consumes the offering. Okay, now how about you? I'm good. All right. Good, good, good. Let me see that. Uh, yeah, is this a Star Wars thing? What is this? You know, checking it out. I'm, I'm good, Lord. I'm ready to go. But not yet. I mean, you get over to like verse 36 in here. And what do we read again? Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will... <laughs> Here comes another one. 
If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Not enough that an angel is speaking to you. Not enough that fire comes out of a rock. Now I'm going to take a fleece, a piece of fleece, throw it on the ground. If it's dry everywhere around the fleece, but the fleece is soaking wet, I'll know it's you. Okay, that's exactly what happens. He picks it up, brings it out. It's full of water. Are you good? I'm good. Gideon goes back and goes, can you do that in reverse? I mean, can you do that in reverse? Like make the fleece dry, but make the ground wet. God is so patient as he he does it. And there it goes. The fleece is dry. The ground is wet. This is where the whole term putting out a fleece came from. By the way, it's not that positive of a thing to do. It actually reflects lack of faith, doubt. It's not like the the best theological uh, application to to find out what God is doing in your life. But God is patient with us. He's patient with Gideon. And he continues to to prove to him. So Gideon gets it finally. He says, okay, I get it. Then we get into the seventh chapter. Early in the morning, you know, he gets all of his people together. And now he's got about 32,000 men. Yeah, that's a pretty good number, right? 32,000, fair size. But what you don't read till a little later on is there's 135,000 Midianites with camels. Let's see, 32,000 versus 135,000 with camels. Doesn't sound like uh, that big of a, you know, advantage, right, as far as the Israelites go. Not that many. So anyway... He's conversing with God. He's trying to figure out what God is doing. And you know what? God will always cut your odds down. Have you ever noticed that? And so over in verse 1, early in the morning, the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. This is where conversations with God get interesting. You know, you challenge God, challenge God, challenge. It's like the more you challenge him, the more he cuts your odds down. Do you know what Gideon's name means? Cutter. Cutter. That's his name. And it's like God is cutting him down a little bit at a time until Gideon gets to the place where he can cut the Midianites down. So he begins to shave the odds back and shave them back and shave them back. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left. Oh my goodness, you know, 22,000 scaredy cats. Just, you know, I mean, anytime you get ready to do something big and you ask, are any of you scared? And like 80% of the people raise their hand and you go, well, you can go home. It's going to definitely cut your sight. Anytime you ask about fear, cuts it down. So now there's 10,000, right? 10,000 to 135,000. Man, I love this story. So you think, okay, this is, this is getting interesting. What an interesting story. Your, last, your next fill-in here, your third fill-in is this. God is not impressed with your challenges. How the odds may be stacked against you. It does not stop him from doing great things through you. As a matter of fact, the higher the odds get, the more God gets glory out of it when you step into it and do what he's called you to do. So there's 10,000 versus 135,000. As we make our way on through this story, we get to 
verse 4, chapter 7, verse 4. There are still too many. <laughs> 10,000 against 135,000. There are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. <laughs> I will thin them out. There's 10,000 to 135,000. What do you call thin, Lord? I mean, really? Is your definition a little different than mine? Uh, Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out. This one shall go with you. He shall go. If I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord said, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. So he's looking at these men, and he's, I can hear Gideon now, Lap, you idiot. Lap, lap, lap. You know, 10,000, lap, lap, lap. And so those that did this got down and did like, did like this, they were, you can leave. Those who laid out flat and did like a dog, <laughs> you can stay. Now, nobody knows really why. I mean, that, you know, people think, well, if you're laying flat and you've got your head this way, you can see the enemy coming. Maybe that's why. But at any rate, I don't think it mattered to Gideon one bit because only 300 made the cut. <laughs> so, I mean, you got the original 300 in here now. Right, the real 300. The 300 against 135,000. 300. How's those odds? And you think yours are high sometimes. And God knows that Gideon is scared. He knows that. And just like God with a sense of humor, what does he tell Gideon to do when he's so scared? He's like, if you're scared, go down to the enemy's camp. I mean, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near the enemy's camp. But this is how God is going to assure him over in Judges 7, 9. He says, go down and listen. So he takes his right-hand man, Pura. He goes down, and I can imagine looking out in that valley, and there's 135,000 people, camels. You can hear this noise, and there you are with 300 people with you. And he sneaks up to a tent, and he hears one of the Midianites saying, I had a dream last night. Now, this dream is a little whacked, but he, he goes... I dreamed that there was this loaf of barley and it was rolling down a hill and it rolled over my tent. This is nothing but the sword of Gideon and the Lord of the, you know, the God of Israel coming in to wipe us out. So Gideon hears this and he goes, Wow. After all of that, what how many is that? One, two, three, what, four or five times he's asked God to prove himself. Now he gets it and he goes, Okay. God has given him into our hands. So he splits them up. A hundred goes this way. A hundred go this way. A hundred go this way. They circle the camp of 135,000. This is in the nighttime. It's dark. He tells them, like I said, they had a great band, trumpets. They take trumpets. They don't have many weapons, but they got some trumpets. They take, <laughs> always those poor musicians, man. They're always out you know, in the front. He t- take a torch, put them up under like a jar, hide that torch so they can't see the light. And let us encircle the camp. And so 100, 100, 100. And Gideon says, when I give the signal, blow the trumpet and break, break the pot so they'll see the lamps. Well, obviously this dream, this dream had just circulated through that camp. So people were on edge. The Midianites are on edge. You never know what God's doing behind your back to pull off what he wants to in your life. You think you're all alone and you have to make your way. If you could see the networking that God's doing, the things that he's weaving back and forth into your life, you would be amazed. One day you will see it. As you get older, you start seeing. You see how God did this and that. 
And so they break the pots that are over the torches, and suddenly there's light. They blow those trumpets as loud as they can. And, of course, the Midianites are freaking out. They look around. It's dark. They can't see anything except around the perimeter. They see these lights popping up. They hear trumpets. They can't even see their friends, their fellow soldiers, because it's so dark. They pull out their swords, and they go to wailing on whoever and whatever is standing next to them. And, I mean, they cut them down until there's only 15,000 left. They kill each other. God turns the enemy against itself in order to see that his will is done. Now, 300 against 15,000, odds are getting a little better, right? Still kind of bad. But you know what? Once you step out for God and do some things, others will see that happening, and they will come alongside you. And that's what happened with Gideon. When he stepped out, and he did that with the 300 than some of the other tribes. When he made the call, they came in to help him. Any of you guys remember Roger Bannister? We got any runners in here? Roger Bannister, the guy who, the first person to ever break the four minute mile. Roger Bannister, uh, back in May 6, 1954, broke the four minute mile. Up to that point, the Greeks had tried to break it over and over and over again. Some of the things they tried are like hilarious. They actually took wild animals and would hold them back and put a runner in front of them and said, now when we let this animal go, you know, we're going to time you. So, I mean, the jaguar or tiger, you'd probably be a little motivation. Uh, unfortunately, they never broke the four-minute mile. I mean, they let it go, ah, take off, and uh, still couldn't break the four-minute mile. They gave tiger's milk to their runners. I'm not talking about the health food bar like I used to eat a long time ago. I'm talking about real tiger's milk. I don't even want to think about where they got that from or how. But they fed them real tiger's milk, thinking that would make them run like a tiger. They could never break the four-minute mile. They couldn't do it. And so they gave up, and they said, it's impossible. No one can break the four-minute mile until Roger Bannister on May 6, 1954, broke it. You know what happened? When he broke it, 46 days later, somebody broke his record. And within one year, 300 people had broken his record. When you step out for God, when you begin your journey, there are others watching. And there are others who will step into this journey and adventure with you as you step in. But somebody's got to step into it. Somebody has to hear God and say, you know what, for my family for my community, for my culture, for my church, for this world, because Jesus loves this world, I'm going to step into what God has called me to do. Now, yeah, they should have been with him all along. And I know all of us would like to say, I want God to prove to me that he's in this before I step out. Well, look at Gideon. He had proof after proof after proof, and yet he still doubted. The fact of the matter isn't when we follow God, Many times we don't see the proof until we've done what he's called us to do. Moses asked God, he said, how will I know that this is you, that you're leading me this way? And Moses, and God basically replied to him, you'll know it when you get there. (laughs) Don't you love that? I told you I was with you. Yeah, but I want more proof. No, you'll know it when you get there. A few years ago, about two years ago, maybe three now, we were up in uh, North Carolina surfing a hurricane swell, a bunch of us, and there was a guy out surfing from Hawaii who was following the 
swell up the coast. And uh, he was on a, what they call a SUP, a stand-up paddleboard. And, and he, was, he was no leash on his board. Of course, we're all like freaking out. It's great. The waves are big. We're like, I hope we can make it. You know, he's paddleboard. You know, he's just paddling over it, back out, catching the biggest of the waves and just cruising through it. And I'm looking on it with amazement and thinking, gosh, you know, how do you get to where you throw yourself into that? Two years, or I guess I should say three years later, here's what he did. did Garrett know he could ride those waves? He didn't. I mean, I've watched, I don't know how many interviews with him. He didn't even know it was going to be that big that day. It was just a confluence of things that just came together for him. But you never know what God will do and will do with you if you don't throw yourself out there. Somebody has to take the step to paddle out. Somebody has to finally say, God, I've heard you. I'm going to step out, and then others come along. You know, he broke his own record. I think it was 10 months earlier. The record was like 80-some feet. That's 100 feet, they said. And, uh, and he's just the most humble guy in the world. I mean, he's just, yeah, I didn't know it was going to be that big. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, right. What in the world would you come from? What is God calling you to? What is God calling our church to? I mean, are we going to let fear, are we going to let doubt stop us from joining God? And your last fill-in is simply this. You know, all of this is about this. God may not be impressed with, you know, our challenges, our weaknesses, our families, all of that. He may cut us down at times so we get to this place of frailty and we get to this place of realizing we don't have what it takes. You know why? Because God is impressed with people knowing who He is and with His glory. He is impressed with people knowing who the God of all creation is, of Jesus Christ who has come and given his life for humanity. That's what impresses God, and that's what he is after. And he gets glory when we in our weakened states, with our families, with all of our frailties and our brokenness, he gets glory when the weak things and the foolish things of this world are used by him to bring glory to himself. And I think we're perfectly qualified as weak vessels. Perfectly qualified for God to do mighty things in. The weaker we are, the more God gets the glory. So don't write yourself off. Philippians 4.11, I think, says this. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him 
be the glory and the power forever and ever. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.